Welcome to the Psychedelic Skeptic Podcast, where nothing is a cure for everything. My name is Dr. Ann Metz. I'm your host. I'm a professor, researcher, and most importantly, a psychedelic therapist. Join me on a journey of discovery as we explore how psychedelics make the leap from small-scale research studies to mass-market mental health solutions. Hello, and welcome to the Psychedelic Skeptic Podcast. My name is Ann Metz, and I'm your host. Today for our first episode, we have a very special guest. With me today is Dr. Matthew Adams, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at Indiana University, Bloomington. Matthew specializes in political philosophy, ethical theory, and applied ethics. Much of his research is animated by the question of how normative ideals apply in political practice. His early research focused on developing a new non-ideal theory of justice, and now he's working away on several new projects, which include exploring the significance of political apathy, giving an account by drawing on Thomas Mann's novel, Dr. Faustus, of what it is for traditional practice to degenerate, and examining the value of conceptualizing food as medicine. His interests in philosophy have always been very broad. He's focused on topics ranging from Plato's late political philosophy, to abortion, to risk assessment and sentencing. Dr. Adams is a rising star in the field of philosophy. His work is insightful, creative, and relevant to the important challenges of our time. And he's committed to using philosophy to make a positive difference in the world. In his spare time, Matthew enjoys cooking, classical music, and ceramics. Welcome to the Psychedelic Skeptic Podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I wanted for our first episode to invite a philosopher on just to unpack the idea of this podcast a little bit more. Of course, the name is The Psychedelic Skeptic. And I thought, who better to talk about skepticism than a philosopher? So that's why we have Dr. Adams here, and he's going to give us a lot of insight into what philosophy could contribute to the developing field of psychedelics. But before we get into that, let's start back a little bit. So, Matthew, can you tell us a little bit about your own interest in psychedelics? So, thank you. Well, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge of the field. I'm kind of excited by the field because it seems like it's very young and emerging. I've read some of the literature on it, maybe particularly Michael Pollan's book that was very interesting. And I suppose I'm excited about its potential in healthcare and psychiatric medicine. It seems as if it could be <laughs> a better treatment, at least some of the ways we potentially <laughs> treat <laughs> psychiatric conditions. <laughs> well, that is the hope. Whether or not it will, you know, take place and actually be a better treatment, I think is the topic of this co- topic of this podcast, and hopefully the topic of our conversation. Uh, but I'm glad to hear that you have read Michael Pollan's book. I think that that's often a way that people are led into this field, and it was just such mm-hmm. an important, uh, such an important early book uh, that I think drew in a mass audience. Yeah, and I was really struck too how he interviewed people who had experienced psychedelics and they looked back at it as one of the most profound experiences of their lives. (laughs) That seems at least something that's worth investigating or or taking seriously. Um, Of course, there could be countervailing considerations not to (laughs) do psychedelics under certain conditions, but I, I think it's at least intriguing that people who have experienced them often seem to see them in such a light. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that that, you know, my experiences as a therapist working with my ketamine assisted therapy practice, it really has been incredible to see how many people have, you know, identified this experience as being spiritually impactful in addition to being psychologically meaningful. But of course, not everyone has. So yeah. um, maybe we can get into that a little bit. But before we do, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about skepticism mm. and the intellectual tradition of skepticism in philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think skepticism is kind of at the heart of philosophy. It's about sort of challenging <laughs> or interrogating beliefs that we hold and seeing whether we have good reasons for holding them. And as skepticism suggests, not just in academic philosophy, but in everyday life, the skeptic is often someone who's skeptical or inclined to challenge and, and question things that may be very broadly accepted. I guess one manifestation in which skepticism was historically important in philosophy was to think critically about religious beliefs. If we zoom back two or three hundred years, everyone took it for granted that there was a Judeo-Christian God. Mm. But because of some skeptical challenges, for instance, about the problem of evil, more and more of those beliefs have sort of changed. Although, of course, there are many religious people, but skepticism made more and more people question whether there are, in fact, good reasons for holding these views. And if you were to think of a modern example of skepticism in our more contemporary context, what would come to mind? Well, it can really range from so many <laughs> different things. I mean, some people are skeptics <laughs> about climate change. <laughs> you know, mm. they're not sure it's a real thing. Some people are skeptics about traditional psychiatric drugs. Some people might be skeptical about something like this emerging feeling field of psychedelics and just think, you know, we don't yet know enough about it. Maybe there are these very fantastic claims that could be made about all its potential, but this hasn't been scientifically verified in enough steps yet. Really, I think yeah. what's interesting about skepticism is you can apply it to almost anything. Well, it does sound like a, a useful place to begin as we sort of see more psychedelics coming into the mainstream and as they become you know, approved by the FDA as treatment for psychiatric yeah. conditions. And as they are permitted in community contexts like they are in Oregon. And I think what you said really brings up an important point that these studies that we have are really promising and they're really exciting, but they're also really small. And they're mm -hmm. in these very controlled settings of research studies, which have such you know, so much emphasis on fidelity so that mm -hmm. every person who goes through the treatment to some extent experiences the same conditions. Yeah. And it's, of course, very different when we generalize to the world where this is something that's going to be done in people's offices or in community mental mm -hmm. health centers or in hospitals where we just have a lot less control over over the over the details and, and certainly probably less time, too. So. To me, that's one of, you know, one of the reasons we want to have, I wanted to do this podcast was just to really, you know, yeah. press the pause button a little bit and think through how this is going to become a mass market treatment from uh -huh. and, research studies. And if you say one thing in any medical context that can be tricky is scaling up very quickly. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what, even if it's been successful, as you say, on a small scale, we don't know what would happen if it was 
something that was done by hundreds of millions of people, there could be all sorts of culturally unexpected side effects and people maybe might start to abuse them <laughs> recreationally <laughs> in certain ways. Sure. I mean, abuse, you know, people having adverse experiences, traumatic mm -hmm. experiences, the opportunity for abuse is certainly real as well, too. And then also just the sort of basic idea of a lack of efficacy, that this isn't going to work for everybody, just in the same mm -hmm. way that psychiatric medication or talk therapy hasn't worked for everyone. That's true. So uh, from your position as a philosophy professor, how do you really see skepticism shaping the discourse around psychedelics? Or in other words, how could skepticism be useful as we talk about this emerging field? Well, I think some of the things we've already said maybe have some implications for this point. We should at least, I think, even if you're supportive of the rough idea of psychedelics, it's, I think, healthy to have <laughs> at least some degree of doubt about potential challenges that could emerge. And in fact, I think confronting these skeptical challenges could just be very beneficial. It could allow <laughs> us to seep in some potential pitfalls and to make them better. I think maybe a kind of different side of skepticism is just to sort of say that maybe some skepticism could motivate something like psychedelics. As we were also saying earlier, it doesn't seem as if a lot of the treatments we have for many medical conditions, particularly psychiatric conditions, are yet entirely optimal. Um, we might be <clears throat> skeptical of things like Prozac or <laughs> other antidepressants. And so I think that type of skepticism should at least maybe motivate exploring other options that have the potential to do better. Um, <clears throat> and I think skepticism can be helpful in, in that way, too, to sort of support the field. Right. So that it could be useful and also something that can help refine what it is that we're doing and yeah. keep us intellectually honest about what it is that we know. As you were saying that, I was having this sort of image of, of, of psychedelics being this very alternative treatment that has been set, I think, in contrast to the mainstream of psychiatric treatment. And then very soon, it's about to become the new treatment, you know, that it's mm -hmm. endorsed by the American Psychiatric Association. Mm -hmm. You know, the American Medical Association, we now have CPT codes for it where we can, you know, build Medicare and Medicaid for it, hopefully. And and what a what a shift that's gonna be culturally right. to go from something that's outside to mainstreamed inside. Yeah. And that's such an interesting shift we see throughout society, particularly in medicine. So many things that were once sort of experimental treatments eventually get promoted to being the dominant paradigm for doing this. Mm. Yeah. Thinking a little bit more about some of the ethical issues and the medical issues that might arise with the mainstream acceptance of psychedelics, do you think there are any historical parallels to this shift that we're on the precipice of that you can think of that might be relevant to our to our conversation and that's a very good question. I mean, I wonder if there are some natural parallels to be drawn just in terms of the history <laughs> of psychiatry itself and how rapid some of the transformations are. I mean, mm -hmm. even something like Freudian psychoanalysis was this very <laughs> niche thing, <laughs> and then it rapidly took off, and then many people became skeptical of that school of thought, and we moved to a more CBT-type <laughs> model. So I, I think 
psychological treatment seem interesting in that they often do seem to be shifting very fast. Mm. N- new paradigms are forming all of the time. So sure. maybe there are some things we can <laughs> look back in the history. Well, it's interesting that you had mentioned Freudian psychoanalysis and then, you know, behavior therapy and CBT as a, mm-hmm. you know, dialectic reaction to that. It makes me start to wonder what will be the, you know, the antithesis of psychedelics once this becomes mainstream. You know, how are we yeah. correct? I think that's What's a fascinating thing place? to think about. Right. Once this becomes, <laughs> and that's the quite remarkable thing about the moment we're in now. I mean, it seems like this very <laughs> avant-garde thing that we associate with these very progressive states like California <laughs> that mm-hmm. are going to kind of legalize it first. <laughs> but yeah, if we imagine zooming forward in, 50 years time what will be the reaction to <laughs> psychedelics so this is the very boring mainstream way of treating depression maybe freud will come back <laughs> maybe maybe so obviously the field of psychedelic research has been has seen significant growth in the last few years are there aspects of the practice or of the research or of the business that you think might present some opportunities for skepticism to be a useful tool? Well, I think maybe one thing to think about, and it's interesting you say it's going to become more and more the mainstream thing. Maybe we should think about the kind of natural commercial <laughs> pressures and incentives that that's going mm. to sort of impose on the industry. I mean, it's sort of interesting. Now, we look back in kind of horror about how painkillers were used and prescribed in the United States. And mm. for a lot of people, it's kind of become clear that there are just these huge financial incentives for big pharmaceutical <laughs> companies to kind of push this and to present it under the veneer of scientific research to say, look, look, we have these findings that it's not addictive, only a tiny mm. proportion of people become addictive. But now we know that these painkillers can be very addictive. Mm. So I wonder if there could be some role for skepticism about how <laughs> how claims about the potential value of psychedelics could be misrepresented or misinterpreted if there's huge financial um profits <laughs> that could be made. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you should say this. I mean, one of the ways in which I have been prickly the last couple of years, you know, as somebody who's worked in public mental health and, you know, the state hospital system, you know, mental health has never been a lucrative area for people to work, and I think that there's a way in which business has latched onto it as this sort of this unrealized market. And it's just really funny to see so many tech people moving into this space after having no interest in it at all. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about the community I used to, I used to work in where I was in the emergency room and there was always a threat that they were going to close the the psychiatric unit and the public hospital because mm-hmm. it's just never a moneymaker. And sure. and now you see these apps and you see all of these people sort of rushing into the space and thinking that it's a way that they can really have a profit. And there's just a part of me that is so, you know, I'm not going to use the word skeptical because I feel like it's going to quickly <laughs> become a cliche on here. Um, <laughs> but I just feel like it's, you know, a little bit of claptrap to think that there's that much money to be made in mental health because, yeah. Historically, there really hasn't been. And yeah. maybe that will shift, but I'm not so sure about that. But 
forgive me, I mean, you know a lot more about this topic than I do. Is it true that historically there hasn't been a lot of money to make mental health? I mean, if you're looking at it at the level of pharmaceutical medication, mm. presumably Prozac made. Sure. A huge amount yeah, of money. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a... Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point, you know, that there is money to be made. Right. And and certainly so much of the, you know, new investment in this field that's coming from venture capital and from, you know, a startup culture is in the pharmaceutical industry yeah. and really the patenting of sure. novel versions of these psychedelic but exactly, but I think that does raise some of these potential concerns, right? <laughs> if, oh, for if, sure. If it could be made at this huge industrial <laughs> level and people can make a lot of profits from it, then there, there could be a huge amount of financial gains to be had from it. And that could distort some of the evidence. I remember I was once taught by a philosopher who had this deep interest in Freud, actually, and he was a Freudian mm. on the side. And <laughs> he, 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 he did some psychoanalysis on the side. And he said, I mean, I think we should be skeptical of this claim, (laughs) but he said he thought the reason the Freudian paradigm collapsed in psychology was not because it didn't work, but because it was just very expensive. There was this huge motivation to say, oh, well, let's move to a CBT paradigm you just need seven hours <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> now i'm not sure i'm not sure that's right but it's a kind of interesting case of saying <laughs> you can kind of see <laughs> in a capitalist society <laughs> mm-hmm. um, particularly in countries like germany or britain where we have state funding of medical care that it's not so popular politically to say like yeah we can get people well but they have to come to a therapist for 10 years sure <laughs> it's a lot better <laughs> if we can say oh no we can just give you these strategies <laughs> that means you're going to be well in a few weeks <laughs> sure yeah and mm-hmm. i think that you're totally right i think that that philosopher is very it, i mean i obviously was not around then but you mm-hmm. know i feel you know obvious the pressures within the managed care system of making sure that you're using what we would call a brief model of treatment. So even if you are doing psychodynamic work, you want it to be like accelerated psychodynamic work. And that that there's this sort of idea that, you know, that we can have, we can have outcomes quickly and that the, the financial pressure of that is, you know, kind of what drives that. Yeah. So obviously, on the one hand, there's a reason to be concerned about the profit motives of companies coming in and just the Mm -hmm. idea that this is an emerging market that we're here to exploit. But there are some real potential benefits of psychedelics. And, you know, as we're sort of rolling this out and we're expanding it and we're answering all these questions around training and education and licensing, you know, how do we sort of balance the benefit of a real in many cases, life-pressing need for treatment with the fact that we should be cautious and careful. I think that's also a really tough question. It it reminds me of, again, to maybe draw a historical comparison, but I think this might be an apt one. One, one controversy during the AIDS pandemic. And in fact, there's this Hollywood film, The Dallas Buyers Club, that the FDA said, well, look, these drugs that could be used to treat AIDS in an advanced form, they haven't passed the right scientific tests. (laughs) So you can't have them. But Mm. then a group of very ill patients very reasonably sort of said, like, yes, but we're expected to die in six months time. We don't care if the drug hasn't been properly tested. We just want to try anything, um, given mm-hmm. how desperate our situation is. 
So I think that these types of cases show there can be a kind of trade-off <laughs> between rigorously scientifically testing something and giving a chance to people who are in a very bad state. Now, I'm not sure how we should try and navigate that balance in the context of psychedelics. I mean, I think mm. a lot of the things that people might be treated for for psychedelics aren't going to be life-threatening diseases in which they're going to die in six months mm. if they don't have some new wonder drug. So perhaps it's not going to be as analogous to this AIDS-type case as it should be. But still, even if that's true, things like depression and some of the psychiatric conditions that psychedelics can test are very debilitating for patients, we know, and some patients try many treatments mm -hmm. and they don't really get anywhere with traditional therapy or mm -hmm. drugs. So I think there are going to be some hard questions, <laughs> even if there are risks of doing psychedelics. If people consent to trying them, should we allow them to do them, particularly if they are having a lot of psychiatric issues that, 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 that can't be dealt with seemingly mm. by other traditional methods? Yeah, that reminds me that, you know, the FDA has had this right to try program um, yeah. for for psilocybin therapy that, you know, sure. people with terminal illnesses and granted the right to, to try psilocybin therapy. Right. And mm. certainly I think in that case, it's a really humane and compassionate way of, of moving forward and also, you know, recognizing that we all deserve the dignity of risk, you know, and while the FDA is important and it's great that it's there and it's trying to keep us safe, I think that there are some some limitations to that and that there are some ways in which we should really consider what the compassionate thing to do is. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, as we're sort of saying this, and certainly it doesn't feel, you know, HIV and the AIDS epidemic were, are, were very different. But yes, you know, for a lot yes. of the folks who are hopefully going to be receiving treatment and a lot of the folks who have been involved in the clinical trials, have been struggling, you know, with PT PTSD and high levels mm -hmm. of, of suicidality. And so, yeah. um, you know, I do think that, that mm -hmm. there is, you know, that there is a real time pressure. We think about the populations that these hopefully investigational products that will be approved by the FDA are, are going to treat. There's a real urgency to it. Maybe the analogy becomes tighter if we are thinking about people who are suicidal. They could be <laughs> in a similar risk to these terminally ill patients in some sense, and it might make sense for some of them to try anything. That's, mm -hmm. that's an interesting suggestion, I think. Yeah, mm. yeah. of course, there certainly have been of, of cases of completed suicides with people who have been treated with psychedelics. Yeah, um, you know, of course. You run the risk when you're working with, you know, a population that is really struggling and is really vulnerable that that is a potential adverse Adverse experience from those drugs and something that I think hasn't really gotten much media attention that they're certainly in and the ketamine trials for the FDA approval of Spravato, you know, there, there were completed suicides and in the community, which has been using ketamine as an off-label mm. treatment for mental health issues, there certainly have been additional suicides. So, yeah. yeah. These are complicated trade-offs that we have to make. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think maybe... We can use some of the tools of philosophy to clarify <laughs> some of the trade-offs, but I think answering them is a much harder question. Sure. <laughs> I certainly don't know how to answer these trade-offs. It just seems as if they are there, and we should be aware of this type of moral complexity in these cases. Tell me some more about these philosophical tools, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just mean to try and 
clarify the concepts and the potential trade-offs and <laughs> philosophical yeah. schools in, the, in a very broad term. To sort of shift our conversation here, obviously you're somebody who works in the humanities and I'm curious what you see as the role of the humanities in helping us to shape this emergent field. Yeah. <laughs> Another <laughs> big question. So, so do you mean how the humanities can shape the field of psychedelics or what psychedelics can teach the humanities? Well, those are like two very different questions. Yeah. Which would you like to start with? Well, <laughs> Maybe I'll start with the second one. I mean, I think to circle back to Michael Pollan a tiny bit, it just seems very interesting to consider the phenomenology of taking psychedelics. Mm. And that seems as if it could <laughs> almost be studied as literary texts are, as a sort of insight into features of the human condition. Um, so mm. I think from that point of view, that will be exciting. I think maybe in terms of what the humanities can contribute it seems to me one kind of intended function of psychedelics is that it expands your imagination or your worldview or makes you sort of see the world slightly differently and i think studying the humanities like philosophy or literature or history is is intended to do <laughs> some of these same things maybe in a slightly mm. slower intellectual way but to get you to sort of question how you view the world to see new potential ways of framing the world Perhaps sort of studying the humanities might make you curious about psychedelics and <laughs> exploring this in this in a slightly different way. <laughs> you know, I think that it's an interesting that you would bring up that the humanities really offer you this new lens and I would argue a meaningful lens. And I think that mm -hmm. one of the reasons psychedelics feel so appealing right now is that we're just living you know, we're living in late stage capitalism after a pandemic, and mm -hmm. it just feels like we're surrounded by this nihilistic system where, mm -hmm. where nothing really matters and we're disconnected from one another. And the draw to psychedelics is feeling self-transcendence. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think this connects with some emerging research interests I have with apathy. <laughs> I think apathy mm. is such a kind of defining feature <laughs> of our time, as you say, maybe particularly in this post-pandemic world where there's a feeling of isolation, a feeling of political disenchantment that's growing. And yet it's interesting to consider how that might motivate a move towards something like psychedelics. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work on, on apathy and political apathy? <laughs> <laughs> this gets a little involved. Well, can I say something else? <laughs> yes, by all means. More relevant. I mean, as as the podcast is the psychedelic skeptic, maybe let me say something that I think might be relevant in this sense. So I, I agree there could be this pressure towards taking psychedelics in the face of apathy and social disintegration. I, I wonder if there might be a sort of leftist critique of this, though. <laughs> in the sense that this type of response might have some type of individual transformation, bring some form of individual solace. But there's a worry, mm. maybe if we're just exploring <laughs> our own private worlds through psychedelics, that that could sort of accelerate the process of fragmentation and isolation and maybe not achieve 
the type of solidarity that we need in the face of this apathy. I mean, I'm not sure. Again, it depends on maybe how the practice of psychedelics works. Maybe there is a more communal way of doing it <laughs> that breaks <laughs> that down. I guess I just wonder if it becomes a sort of standardized psychiatric product, mm. whether <laughs> it could be something, <laughs> you know, perhaps like recreational drugs like alcohol that we <laughs> use that could sort of increase loneliness or isolation from society. Sure, sure, that they, rather than, you know, going out and connecting us to others, it's yeah. just, you know, a bending back on one another and isolating yeah. us. And, yeah. you know, much like traditional mental health care, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, obviously there are a lot of people out there that are enthusiastic about group therapy, but the number of times I have encouraged someone to join a group because I think they it would be really helpful and beneficial and there are results and outcomes that can come from a, the group environment yeah. that you can never get an in individual therapy you know, people just kind of dismiss it you know they don't they, mm-hmm. they feel like their pain and experience is so private and shameful that to uh-huh. sort of share it in a group would be you know an experience in humiliation and you know i guess i i think that maybe group psychedelics might be a way of combating that critique a little bit but mm-hmm. i'm also being realistic that mm-hmm. that most people who are going to want to do this are going to prefer the individual experience right <laughs> particularly if they feel self-conscious about it yeah yeah i mean it is a really unnerving thing to be incredibly vulnerable and right. in front of a bunch of other people too right. you know it's not it's not like group therapy where you could just sort of choose yeah. to speak or not speak. I mean, you're really mm-hmm. in this non-normal state where, you know, yeah. your physical body is yeah. you're not in control in the same way you usually are. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I guess it's interesting if it becomes more mainstream, if we could ever imagine that it would become analogous to sort of casual social drinking, whereby people go up for a very small dose of a psychedelic communally. I don't know. I think maybe Burning Man is an example of, of you know, casual group psychedelic use in a I social see. context, yeah. which obviously neither of us are participants in. Well, maybe we could ask kind of one more question that I think is related to your interests in, in theories of justice and a big issue in, I would say psychedelic conversations involves Mm -hmm. the idea of cultural appropriation, cultural appreciation, and then just the need for indigenous reciprocity. Obviously plant medicines have been embedded in cultural traditions for many, many thousands of years, Mm. often with indigenous people. And really the medicalization of those treatments has been criticized as a form of colonialism. I'm sort of curious about your thoughts on this sort of cultural appropriation and maybe what we can do to help create a a just system of psychedelics. Gosh, yeah, (laughs) very big questions, but important questions. Well, yeah, I wonder if it partly depends on how the practice of psychedelics is done. As we were saying, I mean, the more it shifts towards a kind of purely medicalized thing of taking a product and selling it, <laughs> the more that maybe does seem like cultural <laughs> expropriation. Maybe there is a way of trying to integrate it with um, some of the more respectful cultural roots. I think if you don't mind, I also would like to shift just to raise a sort of different related concern when we're talking about the justice of it. And that seems to me there are going to be a lot of concerns of justice about the access to 
psychedelic mm. drugs. As we're all familiar with in the United States, <laughs> there are problems of access for all drugs because there isn't a nationalized healthcare system. And I wonder if there might be kind of a parallel set of concerns with psychedelics that upper middle class wealthy people are going to have much better access to these experimental treatments that could be quite expensive mm-hmm. and that maybe poor or more vulnerable populations just won't get to try them. And mm. That's, I think, certainly a deep concern from the perspective of distributed justice as well. And I think that's a very accurate character characterization yeah. of what's happening right now. You know, obviously the only legal psychedelic that we have is, is ketamine mm-hmm. and there is you know, the only one that insurance will cover is, is this, you know, is this bravado version. But so everyone else is really having to pay out of pocket for that. And it's a cost prohibitive treatment, I think, in a lot of yeah. cases. I, I think you bring up a great point. And I think there's a hope that when something like, I mean, assuming that MDMA is legalized down the road, that there is going to be the potential that insurance is going to cover it. But I'm not really that optimistic about it. And just, I guess, to point to a final tension, I guess I was saying (laughs) maybe to avoid the cultural expropriation charge, there's maybe this pressure not to standardize it and to medicalize it too much. But I guess Mm -hmm. looking at it from this other perspective of access to the drugs, maybe there is that pressure to do that because that could drive the price down a great deal Mm -hmm. um, and make it more accessible to people. Yeah. 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 I think that, I think that really is the hope is that, you know, that if we are able to get coverage for it, that that would potentially drive the price down, you know, and, and certainly something like group therapy would also drive the price down because suddenly the cost of the therapist time is sort of spread over a couple of people. But, you know, I mean, if we look at what's going on in Oregon right now, it's a very expensive treatment to have a psilocybin facilitated experience within Mm -hmm. Oregon, I think it's around $5,000, which is not something that you can bill to your insurance out of network and get reimbursement for, you know, it is. You really have to be very wealthy to try it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you think about, you think about the people who really suffered during the pandemic and, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, people that certainly that would certainly be out of reach. So Yeah. Uh, I just think that's such an important piece of it. And the cultural appropriation piece, I mean, I just kind of, I feel like I bristle a lot when I see, you know, and I mean, I live in the Southwest, and so there's just a lot of cultural appropriation. Yeah. Well, finally, I'm just sort of curious if there are any thoughts that you have on what might be a great place to start if people are interested in diving deeper into either the philosophical literature on psychedelics Uh or on skepticism? Yeah, well, I think if you're interested in exploring skepticism, I would sort of recommend a classic philosophical text, which is Descartes' Meditations. (laughs) And here he's just sort of thinking about all the beliefs he has and thinking about whether he has good reasons to hold them. And Mm. I think this could be a good text for kind of bringing alive how you can sort of think through <laughs> skepticism and challenge all of your beliefs. <laughs> and although <laughs> it's written so long ago, I, I think it's still something that that seems very vital and, and, and speaks to our own times and predicament. Certainly, you know, to the extent that psychedelics make us aware of consciousness, it, mm-hmm. it feels almost like it's a companion 
piece of literature to that personal experience of, of yeah. recognizing that the basis of existence is not mm -hmm. stuff or the body, it's our consciousness. Well, great. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for speaking with us today. If folks are interested in contacting you or learning more about what your work, where would they get a hold of you? Well, they could check out my website or email me. <laughs> my email Great. is mra10.au. Excellent. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. And I uh, really enjoyed our conversation. I feel like it was very illuminating. And it also really set the stage for what I hope are continued conversations about about the ways in which we need to be mindful and intellectually honest about what it is that we know and also careful and cautious. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was The Psychedelic Skeptic with Ann Metz. 